Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast. Today's show will be on the diagnosis and cause and treatment of recurrent pregnancy loss, also known as miscarriage. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education, resources, and support for both infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a heart plus pharmacy savings card, which helps patients, both cash-paying and insured patients, save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on the Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, you can talk to your doctor or you can visit the Faring website, which is faringfertility.com slash heart, or you can give them a call at 1-888-FARING. That's F-E-R-R-I-N-G. Hey, and we could use your help. The single most important thing you could do to help us is to rate this podcast on iTunes iTunes has something of a monopoly, not really a monopoly, but they certainly have a lot of power in the uh, podcast uh, radio market now, which is a good thing, Uh, but it helps us. We are ranked number one, and we'd like to continue to keep that ranking. It also helps people find us. So the more ratings we have, the better. So you can also, if you're uh, feeling particularly uh, magnanimous, you could uh, actually write a comment uh, and leave it as well. Uh, it's both very easy and very quick to do, and we would really appreciate it if you would. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption, and I blog three times a week. A recent blog that you might find interesting was yesterday's blog about the article in the Huffington Post by the man who was surprised and, angered and angry that his wife was pregnant with twins from IVF. The uh, discussion on the blog has been... Um, I guess lively would be the right word, to say the least. And we would love to have you join us. So you can find it at creatingafamily.org slash blog. You can, uh, as always, the comments are as interesting as the blog itself, so please join us. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship to more than 65 countries. Creating a Family, as you just heard, is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information, and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you are looking for an infertility clinic or or an infertility doctor or a therapist or a sperm bank or a donor or a surrogacy agency, please make your first stop to creating a family databases on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, number of cycles, just a a whole host of criteria that we think are important when choosing. By using these databases, you support those who support us, and I thank you. Today's show will be on uh, the diagnosis and treatment of recurrent pregnancy loss. Our guest today will be Dr. Mark Perlow. He is the medical director at Georgia Reproductive Specialist with extensive experience with miscarriage. And let me take a moment to say thank you, Dr. Perlow and Georgia Reproductive Specialist, for their sponsorship sponsorship of Creating a Family. Thank you, and, and welcome to Creating a Family. Thank you, Don, and thank you for creating a wonderful resource uh, for our patients uh, to get more information and actually participate in a discussion about issues that are important to them. 
You know, I do think, honestly, I do think that the uh, some of the best thing that happens is the, uh, the, the the support group and just that feeling of 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 being able to participate and hear from and learn from others and and as and as you well know there is a dearth of accuracy oftentimes on, on any medical information on the uh, on the internet and uh, and we certainly one of our goals is to make certain that what we're providing is Accurate information on all subjects, but uh, in, including miscarriage. One of the uh, the questions that uh, we often get asked is exactly how common is miscarriage? I think people who have experienced it think it's it's quite rare, but is it? Well, I think that there are two issues here. One is miscarriage, and the other is recurrent miscarriage, um, suggesting that there's a possibility of an underlying cause that. Uh, might enhance or increase the risk of a subsequent miscarriage. Um, for most women, it's going to be in the 15 to 20% of pregnancies would be lost. And as a woman ages, that may go up. When you hit uh, around 40, it's going to be about 30%. And at 43, the chance of a miscarriage can be as high as 65%. So that's underlying simply related to age and the fact that um, the number of eggs that are abnormal will increase as a woman gets older, and then some of those will implant and result in a miscarriage. So that is a, um, you know, that's kind of a background risk of miscarriage. When a patient comes in and complains of miscarriage, we have to determine whether this is uh, miscarriage is simply related to aneuploidy or an abnormal of number of chromosomes which may have a very low recurrency risk, or if there's some underlying factor that may be making them more likely to miscarry, and then the risk could be higher. Overall, we we see about uh, 4% of people will have two or more miscarriages and would fall into the category of recurrent pregnancy loss. Well, that brings me to the question of, you know, the the term recurrent pregnancy loss. How many times does a woman have to lose a pregnancy for it to be considered recurrent? Well, uh, again, let's hope that people aren't going to lose. And I think that uh, it, it was interesting. Uh, one of my nurses just went through a course, online educational course in uh, the American College of OBGYN says you have to lose three times, and um, another organization said two losses. And the issue isn't um, how many times you have to lose, it's can you gain information that may reduce the risk of another miscarriage. So if there are factors that could bring about um, miscarriage, those ought to be addressed before uh, a person with infertility is trying an, uh, a treatment or if they've gotten pregnant on their own and miscarried. Um, we can do simple testing to that's coming down in cost to, to determine whether, in fact, uh, this pregnancy has or this information, this loss, uh, portends problems for future pregnancies. And, uh, so I think it's irrelevant how many times you have it. If you have a loss and there's information that you can utilize to reduce the risk of a subsequent uh, miscarriage, that ought to be taken into account after a first loss. Yeah, and, and what I, I want to talk about then that leads us directly to the causes, uh, what would cause a woman to miscarry. And I think it would be helpful um, if we break it down to the timing in the pregnancy. And I'm going to start with a question from Naomi. She says, I don't even know if I'm considered infertile, but creating a family has been my salvation since I found it a couple of months ago. I have no problems getting pregnant, but I can't stay pregnant. We've been trying for almost two years, and I've been pregnant many times, or at least that's what the pregnancy tests say, but then almost immediately I get my period and no baby. Why won't the embryo stick, and what type of doctor should I go to? Would an infertility doctor be the right one? Um, let's divide her questions up. She's got two. The second one, I'm really glad somebody asked because I think there is some confusion as to what type of doctor to go to with uh, if you are suffering from recurrent miscarriages. Uh, but let's start with her uh, question. Um, she doesn't say exactly when she's testing, but it sounds like very early 
uh, that she's testing early enough, uh, and just from our audience, I know that most people who are trying are are testing quite early. But uh, but so the pregnancy test, the home pregnancy test, is coming back positive. But then uh, she miscarries, and it sounds like miscarries before she's even gone to a doctor. So miscarried within the first couple of weeks. Um, is, 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 so what do we call that? Or what would be the primary causes for these very early miscarriages? Okay, so let me uh, take a step back. Uh, and, you know, Naomi, I'd have to know a whole lot of things to really advise you um, as to the different causes. Primarily, the early miscarriages um, we tend to think represent um, more likely to represent chromosomal abnormalities. And the further along you go in the pregnancy, the less likely it will be an immune factor. But any of the factors that can cause miscarriage can cause early loss or later loss. But again, the early ones tend to be more um, genetic related. Now, if uh, someone is you know, 40 years old and um, trying and has repeated losses that are very early, then I might think that it's um, more likely to be related to chromosomes. On the other hand, if they're making it to the second trimester, then it may be more likely to be a uterine malformation or fibroids that are um, causing the problem. Insulin resistance and PCOS uh, can be a factor at any point, and um, whether the immune system plays a role in this and what role it plays has not really been categorized well, but that too may be an early loss phenomena. Yeah, I'm going to come to the uh, uh, immunity factors in, in just a bit because I, I do want to spend some time talking about that. Um, all right, so... Uh, just to summarize that, obviously, uh, you can't diagnose her specifically, but we can talk in generality. So, in generally, chromosomal issues will often result, and I guess that makes sense, um, in a, a pregnancy loss relatively early. And when we say relatively early, we mean um, the first six weeks, or, 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 do you, or does that include the entire first trimester? Or I was going to well, kind of think divide the, it up the earlier very early. You get yeah, the earlier you get, in fact, if we're doing IVF, many of the embryos, when we did biopsies on the third day, were abnormal and never made it to the fifth day or never got uh, transferred. And if they did get transferred, they didn't implant. So, I mean, it, it's a, a very, uh, a, you know, a very strong um, issue and it's a, a rare percentage, a small percentage of the embryos that are abnormal that implant and get to the point where you actually can detect a pregnancy. Um, trisomy 16 is one that will implant and usually you'll find out that you are pregnant. Down syndrome trisomy 21, oftentimes, I mean, those can even be carried to uh, to full term. Uh, Turner syndrome, um, would be one that could be 45X, could be carried longer, um, you know, and, and be a later loss. So the, it really depends upon the severity of the chromosomal, chromosomal abnormality as to how early it might be. Right, because, you know, it, it occurs to me that's kind of an interesting thing that we've learned through infertility treatment and IVF. Uh, maybe we always knew this uh, in theory, but we certainly know now that a lot of, in fact, it's kind of scary at times to think about it, but a lot of embryos that are created um, by the human bodies, you know, are, are turn out to have chromosomal abnormalities. And it's kind of, it's almost a miracle when you think about it that so few of, or it's not, I suppose. I suppose this is how we're all, it's set up to work. But right. uh, they're not set up to grow is, is fundamentally, and that's what miscarriage is. Uh, not to uh, undermine the, the emotional uh, uh, devastation that it could cause, uh, but it often is a result, um, especially the early ones, from what you're saying, of a of, of a of a problem with the embryo. Do, do we actually know how many of them? If you take an average, say, 30 year old woman, 
and uh, and say thirty year old man, so you've got relatively uh, average aged egg and sperm. How many of the embryos that would be created? Is that a fair question? Do we know that? How many? What percentage of the embryos would have? Sure. Uh, it, uh, yeah, and it depends upon when you're looking. So um, mm-hmm. when you're looking at a day three embryo, it hasn't even turned on its own genetic code yet. It's working off mom and dad's genetic code. So um, you can't look at the embryo. If it's going to fail because it has abnormal chromosomes, it's usually going to be later towards the third or the uh, between the third and the fifth day before that starts turning up. If you look at the fifth day, uh, you know, making it all the way out till the fifth day, it's going to be roughly um, 35 to 45% of those embryos that are going to be normal and implant in the early 30s. On the other hand, um, it could be down as low as 20 to 25% as you approach uh, as you approach 40. Uh, another way to look back, there's some good data based on fertility preservation and um, oocyte donor banking, where you're going to see about a 15% pregnancy rate in those around 30 or less, but when you get up to 38 and 40, it may only be 2 to 3% of the eggs have the potential for generating a live birth because of their chromosome makeup. Now, another thing that's so interesting is that um, it's recently been postulated that the we know that the eggs are sitting in a state of suspended animation up until about two to three months before you ovulate. And um, there's been some work looking at uh, CoQ10 and mitochondrial in, um, injections into the um, oocyte to resuscitate the oocyte. And the thinking is that it's not until the egg starts waking up again that it may be susceptible to whatever is causing the problem with abnormal chromosomes. So in mice, at least, the data has shown that uh, we may be able to cut down on age-related aneuploidy in mice. Um, Unfortunately, the information about CoQ10 has gotten into the public literature, um, and people don't want to do a study where they have to be in the placebo group you know, when you're taking a supplement that's relatively inexpensive, most people will say, I'd rather do that than be in the study. So hopefully we'll get some data to prove that that really is cutting down the rates of aneuploidy in older people. But right now we don't have that evidence. That's fascinating. Let me introduce another guest now, Dr. Richard Scott. He is the founding partner for Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, and he is the professor of reproductive endocrinology at the Robert Woods Johnson Medical School. Welcome, Richard Scott, to Dr. Scott, I should say, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Um, at, we were just talking about, uh, actually, CoQ10, and that's fascinating to me. Um, and let me, I'm going to direct this question back to Dr. Perlow because I wanted to make sure he had a chance to finish up on that. So it, it, do we have any evidence? I, I was smiling when you were saying that you're having trouble, or that the researchers were having trouble getting people to participate in being in a uh, placebo control because they don't want the placebo. And I can imagine, um, just knowing our audience, that that would be a real problem that you would have. Um, uh, has there been any evidence to say in humans, that that the amount of CoQ10 that people would be taking in supplemental form that would be safe would have any impact? No, those studies haven't been done to really answer those questions yet. Um, again, there's some data looking at, uh, you know, removing mitochondria, culturing them, subjecting them to uh, different sort of machinations and reinsertion. But, you know, this is one of the biggest problems in recurrent loss across the board is that they're great theories. There are a number of studies that show that things work, but they lack controls. Uh, The studies are poorly designed. Mm -hmm. So we're left making clinical judgments without really having the type of evidence that we would want to... um, to feel safe and happy in the recommendations we're making. Yeah, I can I can appreciate that. 
And, and, you know, one of the hard things, too, is that there is a, one of the things that we've recognized here at Creating a Family is there is a huge gulf between the people who are doing the research and the patient community. There is just, it's, uh, there are a few places for people to go to, to find out what the latest research is showing, and there's a tremendous amount of misinformation that's that just floats around because there isn't a really good and we 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 aspire to be a source of of um, of, of, of disseminating the research and, and and breaking it down into understandable uh, components and disseminating it to the patient community. Dr. Scott, we have been talking about early pregnancy loss and we've got two questions uh and I'm going to combine them because they're very similar one from Sue and one from Lynette. Um asking about what exactly is a chemical pregnancy and does it does a chemical chemical pregnancy that doesn't turn into a pregnancy uh is that considered a miscarriage well it's a it's a simple question and with a simple answer so once you get past implantation to the point that it can be detected with a with a blood test a biochemical test that defines a chemical pregnancy if it doesn't continue if it stops developing at some point in other words it never gets past that stage of detectability that's biochemical-based, in other words, you can't do an ultrasound and see it or, or have some other physical finding, then that's called a biochemical miscarriage or a chemical loss. It is a miscarriage, and it does represent a pregnancy that, that begun but unfortunately did not continue. And, and we got a re- what I think was a really interesting uh, question from Anita on the Facebook group, and she said she was wondering about how accurate statistics are about the likelihood of recurrent loss given the advancement in sensitivity of home pregnancy tests over the last couple of years. I've had five first trimester losses, but three of those have been so early, I wouldn't even have known I was pregnant if I hadn't been testing so so early. So I'm not sure if the statistics I'm looking at of likely reoccurrence should be based on my having five losses or two losses. Um, you know, it was I, for whatever reason it struck me as I thought, well, darn, that is an excellent question. Um, before we can answer that question, we need to uh, talk about the likely having. We need to first approach the subject of if you have had um, a, a miscarriage, are you more likely to have a miscarriage in the future, Doctor Scott? Well, if you've had one chemical miscarriage, the answer is no. Um, however, if you start having more than that, then the risk begins to increase. And if you've had even one clinical miscarriage, the risk goes up slightly. But the big jump in miscarriage risk actually comes after three, which is why, as Dr. Perlo noted earlier, the American College of OBGYN puts the risk at three. Um, there is a small further increase after two, which is uh, why uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine has chosen that number. I, I strongly agree with Dr. Perlow, though, that those are all arbitrary designations, and we investigate every miscarriage because every lost pregnancy uh, is a tragedy of sorts, and we want to, to make sure that we're as well-informed as possible for future pregnancies. However, having said all that, one biochemical miscarriage should make no one panic and should make uh, no one feel bad about the reproductive future. So in answer, for, so for Anita, the answer is yes, she would be considered uh, having had five miscarriages, not right. two. Okay. That's right. Particularly with three, you just don't get, and unfortunately in science and medicine, you don't get to choose what to leave in and what to leave out. You have to look at the whole picture. Uh, yeah, and five losses annoyed me. Italy is a big number. Okay. All right. Well, she probably doesn't want to hear that, but that <laughs> that is, of course. So so once you've had uh, just one miscarriage, we don't get too worried, although your, your increase might be slight. But... I, the truth is, for a lot of people who are not actively uh, trying, they won't even know that they have um, had a miscarriage. They would, their period will be have been a little late, and they probably won't even know it. But for people who are actively trying, which, quite frankly, is the majority of our audience, um, then they would, they are testing as early as they possibly can, and usually even before they possibly can, and um, and so they they would be knowing, noting um, the number of losses and. And they all count. All right, that's yeah. One of the things that um, we had talked about, uh, you mentioned just briefly, Dr. Perlow, was insulin resistance. So, are uh, diabetics, or is uh, uh, a person with uh, diabetes or pre-diabetic conditions um, more likely to have 
um, uh, early uh, first trimester miscarriage. Dr. Perla? Well, our um, feeling on that is it really depends on each patient. Um, if we see a patient with PCOS, if you do a background screening, about uh, 30% of patients with recurrent loss will have some signs suggesting insulin resistance or PCOS. Uh, one of the problems there is that there are uh, we're just starting to agree on how one makes a definition of PCOS, but I think it's important to look at uh, the metabolic parameters. If I see a patient who has high androgen levels and um, an uncontrolled hemoglobin A1C and markers of inflammation, I'm going to be concerned. On the other hand, if uh, their PCOS is well controlled, they don't have a um, a problem with obesity um, and androgens are normal, I'm less concerned about the potential that PCOS is a factor. Again, that's another area where we have some data, but it's certainly not definitive data on the use of insulin sensitizers. Again, anecdotal data would suggest if you have um, PCOS and you use an insulin sensitizer, you may reduce the uh, risk of miscarriage. But again, those studies are not large enough sample size. They're not well enough designed. They don't have control populations. So I don't think that has been um, clearly answered as of yet. And when you say insulin sensitizers, what do you mean? Uh, that would be a drug like metformin or Actos or any of the nutritional supplements. Uh, dietary changes are um, important as well as exercise. Um, in managing PCOS, uh, everybody has heard about metformin, so we see a lot of patients who are placed on metformin, um, but don't don't exercise. They haven't changed their diet, so they're still subject to the whims of PCOS. And we feel that approaching that and doing, making sure that they're healthy and a healthy metabolic status prior to achieving pregnancy, is probably the best uh, best. Uh, steps to take in dealing with PCOS and limiting a risk. Well, that leads into Louisa's question. She asks, how does weight affect my risk of miscarriage? Uh, Dr. Scott? Well, And I, uh, I will say that Louisa doesn't say whether she's overweight or underweight. Um, she doesn't say that, so I guess answer it both ways. Certainly. Overweight uh, is a risk factor, uh, and some that can be attributed to many factors. There may even be a direct endometrial effect that uh, uh, has been published on, but those series are all small. And most of these, uh, a large cross-sectional study has not been done to give us great data. But miscarriage risk does go up with age, particularly if you have uh, components of insulin resistance, which of course increase with increasing weight and therefore increasing BMI. On the, on the low-end scale, if, you're, if your protein status is normal, if you're not catabolic, if you're not kind of wasting away, uh, then the difference in loss risk is amazingly low uh, regarding first trimester pregnancy. So if you're metabolically sound and you just happen to be a thin person, uh, then your risk is not uh, meaningfully altered. Now, on the other hand, if you've got anorexia or bulimia, that leads to a number of metabolic derangements that can increase loss risk. So um, th that one is a little bit tougher to ferret out. It's probably something worth discussing with, with your doctor and looking at your protein status. But in, but in overweight patients, is an issue. All right. Now, we've been talking about first early pregnancy loss and first trimester uh, pregnancy loss, I'd like to kind of move uh, towards thinking about the differences in uh, second trimester loss. But before you do that, let me tell you that you're listening to Creating a Family. It is our mission to provide unbiased, medically accurate information and to support those suffering from infertility. A resource you might find helpful is our list of blogs from people who have experienced and blog about recurrent pregnancy loss. There's nothing like a good blog to make you feel less alone. So um, there are several places to find. We have listed in different places on our site. One, we have an entire section on our site for miscarriage. Hover over the word infertility on the blue horizontal menu at the top of the site. Click on the word resources. A drop-down menu appears. So click on the word resources and then click on miscarriage and it will take you directly there, or you can just go to our blog, creatingafamily.org slash blog, uh, and uh, the blog role is listed on the left-hand side, and we've got uh, a ex very, very extensive blog role for all types of diagnoses and all types of infertility, including miscarriage. 
Now, Dr. Scott, I'm going to move to second trimester pregnancy loss. And I realize that this is an overly general question, but if, what are some of the distinctions that we would see uh, between lo- losses that occur in the second trimester versus losses that occur either very early in the first trimester or any time in the first those first 12 weeks? Well, th- dividing the line at uh, at the right at the trimester point or 13 and a half weeks is a little bit arbitrary, as you as you noted. Uh, mm-hmm. Back up a little bit to the time when the nature of the placenta's maturing uh, changes, which is around 10 or so gestational weeks uh, is an approximation, and things begin to change. Immunology becomes relevant um, and uh, can be extremely, extremely important. Other, other components of things that make you uh, more uh, prone to clotting become significantly more important. Things like protein C and S and, and a variety of, of other things that go into that um, can become important. That's because the nature of the circulation of the placenta changes, and now all of a sudden there is a much higher risk for clotting, whereas prior to that time none really, none really has ever been documented to exist. Um, you also see an increase in the risk from problems with the shape of the uterus, uh, and that becomes a, a much bigger, bigger issue. Uh, you continue to see problems even with thyroid where there's a difference in loss risk. Uh, there's slight differences in risk from infection. Um, certain types of genetics, translocations, can be a little bit more overrepresented out here. So, But the reality is most of aneuploidy, most of the wrong number of chromosomes, goes away by the second trimester. And now you're dealing with issues that function uh, truly within the maternal environment, um, and they really become the focus of our evaluations. Okay, now I want to talk some about immunology um, and, and how the immune system uh, can affect uh, miscarriage or can increase the risk our immune systems can interact with a pregnancy and cause the, uh, the woman to lose the pregnancy. Um, Dr. Perla, we've, uh, there's a, a myth, or I don't know if it's a myth, but there's the, the idea that somehow a woman could be allergic to uh, the baby, and we've had this uh, posted about before. Um, when we speak of immune system, what do we mean, and, and how does that influence a woman's ability to carry a pregnancy to term? Well, I think that hasn't been um, uh, clarified as of yet. Um, again, there are a number of studies that look at measuring peripheral blood and try to uh, look for uh, various antibodies or um, NK cells or cytokines, and assume that that's uh, that these peripheral blood cells are similar to and um, represent what's going on at the interface between the placenta and the um, uh, placenta and the uterus. Uh, Dr. Scott had mentioned uh, that there is a maturing of the vascular system going on. And what it appears now is that in those pregnancies that may be failing of an immune basis or due to an immune etiology, that the um, vascular system does not mature. It does not uh, allow for increased blood flow to the uh, placenta as it uh, goes through that uh, 9 to uh, 12-week interval. So... Looking at that is very difficult, obviously, in a clinical setting and coming up with tests to determine um, how we should interpret this and proceed clinically is uh, is lacking. Uh, Richard, I remember at uh, the UC Irvine meeting a few years back, uh, you looked at a large group of IVF patients and looked at just about every uh, immune test under the sun at that point and found that there wasn't a a single test that allowed us to predict who was going to be successful in IVF and who wasn't. So I think that we are challenged at how to evaluate the um, patient and truly make a diagnosis of um, immune fertility. Autoimmune, um, we seem to understand. Okay, well, that's, yeah, that's, that, you led me directly into the question. So how, uh, there are a number of tests that exist. Uh, how, how can, uh, how accurate are they, and, and when should, should a patient consider um, immunology testing, um, uh, Dr. Scott, if, uh, if they are suffering from recurrent pregnancy loss? Well, again, I, I, I just want to concur with my colleague, but the, the reality is, is that, there are some gray zones here. People with very, very early recurrent loss 
are unlikely to have, for instance, uh, one of the antiphospholipid antibodies, it's a group of disorders, be the primary source for that. Um, natural killer cells are not associated uh, with that uh, in any of the prospective studies that I um, am knowledgeable about or know about. Um, and as you get, uh, for instance, with antiphospholipid antibodies or some of the other clotting disorder-related issues, they become more important as pregnancy progresses. Exactly where to draw the line can be arbitrary uh, and for any of us when we're making those decisions. Um, we do not screen uh, people who have very early recurrent losses for immunologic disorders, nor is it the recommendation of any of the professional societies based on the evidence that's in the literature today. Exactly where you cross that line uh, and you should be screening people begins sometime in the mid to late uh, first trimester. And so that's really, the, that's really the threshold time, but there's not a single point of time that always makes sense. And is there a single test that would be the, if you have had, say, two um, uh, uh, miscarriages around the 10-week or after the 10-week point, um, and I appreciate how your your point is well taken that our trimester system is not necessarily from a, it, 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 it's not necessarily the best division here. Um, sure. But, yeah, but it, so if you've had a couple, uh, two miscarriages, uh, af, uh, later miscarriages after 10 weeks, 10 weeks are passed, um, should you at uh, should you be tested for uh, immune issues, or do we have enough evidence to support that that we would know what to do? If in fact, do we do we know how to interpret the results from these tests? Uh, and Dr. Scott, I'll direct that to you. Sure, that late in the game, we do have a lot of evidence, and and screening can be a great idea, and it can really help us get more people to term with healthy babies. And so, um, there's a panel. It's not a single test. You can just say one thing in order, but basically any cardiolipin antibodies and um, a number of the antiphospho uh, antiphospholipid antibodies, particularly antiphosphatidylserine, is probably helpful. Um, lupus anticoagulant um, is an immune test, uh, which is certainly worthwhile uh, doing in that setting. And then there's a lot of other testing that may not be uh, autoimmune in nature, but it works and it has a similar mechanism, not exactly the same, but related, that may look at... Uh, other things that could cause the placenta to have these vascular and clotting issues. So we classify those together as the thrombophilias. And so all of that needs to be looked at, uh, and that unfortunate young lady has, who has had two late first trimester losses. All right. One of the things you had mentioned earlier um, is the possibility of infections, and I wanted to turn to that right now. Dr. Perlow, what type of infections, uh, I'm assuming if it was a, a blazing, flaring type of infection, somebody would know that they had this and that would have been suspected. Is it possible to have an infection and not know that you have it? And how would that uh, result in uh, miscarriages after the initial uh, period of time, say after the um, 10 to 12-week period? Right. Well, there are a number of uh, infections that can result in pregnancy loss. The, when it comes to the issue of recurrent pregnancy, it would obviously have to be a subacute or chronic infection that uh, would result in this loss. In the past, we thought that um, urea plasma was an organism that would result in recurrent pregnancy loss, and people would culture this and then treat it. And there was some data that said that G people did better when you treated. Then there were other people who went out and did studies where they just treated everybody and they did better. Um, and then unfortunately there are studies that say just going to a doctor's office for recurrent pregnancy loss will improve this. So at this point I don't think the, the evidence is overwhelming to support um, infection as a basis for recurrent pregnancy loss with uh, multiple pregnancies. Would there be something like chlamydia? Chlamydia, is it a, a risk because it's possible to have chlamydia, although most people now are tested for it if they go to their OBGYN. Um, but is that uh, a, would that impact miscarriage or just your ability to get pregnant to begin with? Well, it may have an effect uh, potentially on both. Um, I'm uncertain and, have, again, not seen good data to say that carrying chlamydia antibodies and having a negative chlamydia infection um, is a risk factor. I'm not aware of that. 
um, screening for that in the cervical culture certainly can be done. Uh, there are a number of false positives and false negatives, and that ought to be part of a an infertility evaluation. But um, to say that that is the cause of recurrent loss and how to detect that it would be in a given case, I think, is unclear. Okay. Dr. Scott, are IVF patients more at risk for uh, miscarriage than the uh, patient who conceives uh, without the use of IVF? Um, as a whole, no, which is great news. There's that a, is great a news. classic article written by Laura Sheath, um who looked at an entire year's worth of data uh, from the entire United States and compared the miscarriage risk. She worked at the CDC and um, compared the miscarriage risk and follow-up and controlled for age and other uh, obvious factors and actually showed that the, the miscarriage risk is neither higher nor lower. Um, and so while by no means is uh, IVF is, a, is a, a treatment, a guarantee that you won't miscarriage, it certainly does not put you at increased risk for miscarriage. I think in today's world where we're doing more and more aneuploidy screening, which I know you all spoke about a little bit earlier, but where you screen the embryos chromosomally uh, greatly reduces the risk of clinical miscarriage. It reduces the risk of chemical miscarriage in older patients, but not so much in younger patients. So there's more to this than just genetics. But still, when you take out abnormal genetics, you get rid of the substantial majority of the losses. And so uh, as we use more and more genetic screening in IVF, we'll probably have to see an overall lower miscarriage risk. Well, I was just going to ask about that. If it seems if we are, um, if we if we were to screen out the embryos, and uh, prior to your joining the show, we were talking about the fact that just in nature, a a fair number of uh, embryos will have abnormal abnormal chromosomes, and will not you know we will be destined not to uh, grow into and in, in, in full term birth. So it seems like if we're able to screen out those that we would, yeah, potentially uh, reduce the risk. But we're not there yet, I suppose, because we're not screening. So, but I do want to oh, talk about the screening. Actually, we screen a lot, and, and uh, in, in our program, we screen almost seventy percent of our patients, and so uh, the miscarriage risk has gone uh, gone down quite substantially. So this really is a, a feasible, applicable technology in today's world. It's helping. Okay, and that's what I wanted to talk about. All right, what type of uh, – so this is for the uh, – uh, in our audience, many people are at the point where they are considering or uh, moving towards or have already done IVF. So for patients who are going to be doing IVF, um, how do they know if they should do screening? Because usually that is an additional charge. Um, uh, and I don't know if that will continue to be that way, but that's the usual case. So how does the patient know whether they should go ahead and and screen their embryo? And, and Dr. Scott, I'll ask this one to you. Well, I think at the current time, there are now a, a number of randomized trials which which show benefit. And, in fact, a study which is not out yet, so it's not fair to quote that, but it will be out very shortly, which actually shows that it reduces costs, costs of treatment, to, um, to screen embryos genetically because you do so many fewer cycles. So I, I think that patients uh, look at these charges, and they can be two or $3,000. So it's real money. It's a, it's a great deal of money, and that has to be respected. But the reality is, is your pregnancy rates per cycle go up dramatically. The number of embryos you put back go down dramatically. Your multiple pregnancy risk can be virtually negated, which, by the way, has more to do with the long-term health of the baby um, and the babies, if it's twins or triplets, um, than just about anything. And so that that's an enormous benefit. It oh, trust me, this is a recurrent theme. A recurrent theme here creating a family is the pregnancy rate. It makes a 42-year-old's yeah. risk of an ongoing Down syndrome pregnancy less than they were when they were 21. So there's some real benefits there, and they have to weigh the benefits of those. But across the board, it costs a little bit more money up front. Right. How does it? Uh, I'm curious what you mean about the. How does it reduce the multiple the rate uh, the multiple pregnancy rates? Other than the fact that that it encourages people to do a single embryo transfer. Is is that what you meant? Or uh, maybe I'm. Right. You know, there there are, are many prospective randomized trials showing that if you put two back or even three back, um, that you get much higher pregnancy rates than if you put one back. In fact, every prospective study just comparing one versus two, for instance, shows that two is better. Yeah, but if you screen the embryo genetically, you can do as well with one as you do with two. 
And so now all of a sudden you can have pregnancy rates, which even in women in their 40s can be in the 50 to 60% range or higher um, from a single embryo. So you're able to maintain pregnancy rates in the younger patients, raise them in the older patients, and eliminate multiple gestation, except for the occasional identical twin. So the reality is you're talking about much safer pregnancy courses and many fewer cycles required to conceive. And so across the board, this is, this is highly cost-effective. It's not always for the patient. If they have to pay for the, for the genetics out of pocket, but their insurance would have paid for their obstetrical care, then they don't bid as much personally, even though the healthcare system saves a fortune. So um, the reality that, is, yeah. is that genetic screening is, is being done in an ever-increasing percentage of patients because it's safer and you can transfer fewer embryos, you get healthier babies and less risk of anomalous pregnancy. Yeah, it just it is one of those frustrating ironies that, in fact, that that from the actual total cost uh, from a multiple pregnancy, both to the child, to the for the for the obstetrics care, for the long term health of the kid, and then and the uh, or kids, I should say, uh, it's it's very expensive to have twins, and yet. Uh, insurance uh, that often will not cover for many people. Yeah, the, uh, the risk of uh, pregnancy complications with the multiple births uh, would very definitely speak to insurance companies providing coverage for this. We've seen uh, not the same uh, percentage, but certainly agree across the board that if a woman is going to go through um, two or three frozen embryo transfer cycles, it's much uh, uh, much less costly to achieve the pregnancy. There are a couple of caveats with that. One, the program needs to have um, a person who is well-skilled in biopsy, and this isn't um, seen across the board. In some of the early studies, there was a big variability in success rates um, and outcomes between different clinics. So um, the clinics have to have um, experience with embryo biopsy at the blastocyst stage. Uh, the other thing is that um, if you're in a program like Dr. Scott's, you can get your genetics results back in a timely fashion. For many of us, that involves uh, doing the biopsy and having the cells transferred to a specialty lab where they can be processed. So that would mean either doing a transfer on day six or freezing the embryos and transferring the next month, with, uh, which may very well be beneficial uh, to transfer subsequently if there was high estrogen or progesterone during the preceding cycle. But the patients have come to expect an immediate transfer, and for some of them, um, that's a concern as well. Well, I was just going to say from some of the recent uh, studies, well, not so recent even, but uh, some of the studies that we reported on from, I think it was last year's ASRM, right. um, yes, it might have yes. been the year before, talking about the advantages of of actually not, of actually freezing and uh, and then doing it, waiting the following month, so there would be some advantages. But you're correct; there are not many people who want to hear that. Um, Dr. Perlow, what uh, when we say screening, and I'm, I was glad you you brought up the issue. It does require a biopsy of a blastocyst stage, or or actually, it could be done at the three day stage. Can't uh, is the well, screening uh, only done at blastocyst, or yeah. is it done three days? I think as well? right. I think right now the state of the art is to uh, biopsy on the fifth day. The embryo is uh, more resilient. You're able to take trophoblast cells, which are the cells surrounding distant to become the placenta rather than cells from the, um, the embryo. So it seems like there's less of an adverse effect on the embryo if the biopsy is done on the fifth day. The other thing is you're going to be biopsy and testing few embryos because as we said earlier, the embryonic genome is not turned on to the third day, so many of those abnormal embryos will select themselves out between the third day and fifth day yeah. or even the sixth day and won't be available to biopsy. Creating a Family. You are listening to Creating a Family. We have the largest infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us on Twitter. You can connect with us two different ways. One, with me personally, Dawn Davenport, one or you could connect to Creating a Family, which is Creating a Family. On Facebook, there are three ways to reach out and connect to us. One, me, personally, Davenport one You can also like our Facebook page, Creating a Family Facebook page, and join our very active Facebook uh, support group. 
You can find both the Facebook support group as well as the Creating a Family page by typing in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and you can then like the page and join the group. Um, now, uh, when we're, we're talking about screening, it, it, are we primarily exclusively screening for aneuploidy, Dr. Scott? At uh, We take the... Uh, we take and, and let me for the uh, we are doing a show in June, I believe, on uh, the whole uh, on genetic screening um, and uh, PGD and PGS, uh, and that will be an entire show on it. But uh, so for those of you who are interested, make sure you sign up for our newsletter on the left hand side of any page on our site, and you will get notice of when that show will be. But Dr. Scott, now primarily when we are screening are we primarily screening uh, genetic screening are we doing it primarily looking for aneuploidy the most common cause is certainly aneuploidy because as has uh, been noted earlier in the show i mean that every potential patient can be impacted by that um, and so and that helps us select the best embryos because morphologically in terms of the way the embryo appears under the microscope ones that are genetically broken and those that are normal appear the same uh, for people who are at risk for specific disorders, we can at the same time also look for a specific gene that's broken, like in cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy. Right. Um, and at times people have rearranged chromosomes, like translocations, and we can measure all of those. And it's now possible to do all of those in a single in a single biopsy, in a single sample. Um, but, but wait, wait you said it is possible? Wait a second. You said it is or is not possible? I misunderstood. It is possible. You can do all okay, of those in one biopsy at one time. Um, <laughs> That's a very that's a very important consideration. That's one of the advantages again of doing day five biopsy. Um, those samples are a little different because they have more than one cell, and that and uh, you not only avoid the detriment of day three biopsy, which by the way is a appears to be about thirty nine percent. So roughly two fifths of the pregnancies are lost if you biopsy on day three, um, and there's no detriment to biopsying at the blastocyst stage. So I strongly I strongly concur with my colleague. But uh, the reality is is those cell, those uh, those um, that biopsy from the day five embryo, because it has a few cells in it, three to five, actually empowers us to do many, many different things with the biopsy, and we can actually test for all of those things at once. And and when you are biopsying, uh, one of the fears that people have is that you are taking cells that this uh, embryo will fundamentally need at some point, and that uh, it, it, it's speaking to the question or the issue that you raise about why there is such a, um, a significant risk to the embryos for a day three. Why does that same risk not exist for a day five? And go, I'll go ahead and let you finish answering this one, Dr. Scott. Sure. And, then, and, and So on a day five embryo, as, as we noted earlier, you can see uh, a number of different parts of the embryo. They're differentiated now. So there's a little bump on the inside. That's called the inner cell mass. That becomes the fetus. And the area beneath it and in the vicinity of that become uh, placenta. The ones that are further away, um, the trophectoderm that are out there, tend to become placenta uh, at times, but mostly are membranes. So if you take away membrane cells, you don't lose very much. And so across the board, that does not have uh, short or long-term detrimental effects on those pregnancies. And so it's just safer. So when you can see what you're taking away and you're not taking away something critical, the process becomes uh, much safer, and that's why we do it. Okay. We've gotten a question, an email question just came in from Roberta, and she is asking the distinction between a stillbirth and a late-term miscarriage, and I, she doesn't ask, but I assume she means both what, but also what might cause, if there's a distinction in cause and a distinction of how one might treat those. Dr. Perla? Um, well, the stillbirth is obviously a delivery where the child is not alive. With a late-term miscarriage, a uh, baby could be born alive or not. Um, again, we think about things like infection, uh, placental thrombosis, blood clotting in the placenta or early separation of the placenta. Um, uterine malformations can come into play there, fibroid tumors. Um, incompetent cervix where the cervix will open early. Um, again, I think one needs an, a thorough evaluation, autopsy and chromosomes on the fetus to try and make a determination of what factors may be involved. Is a person who has had one, um, whether we call it a stillbirth or a miscarriage, but a late term, and I don't actually know, what past what week would we 
Viability is what uh, uh, considered typically. What what is the number of weeks for viability, Dr. Perla? Well, I mean, at 24, many places are able to um, bring about survival. So that would be considered um, a point where you're going to work quite hard to save the pregnancy with expected good results. Whereas 32 um, weeks, it's um, a lot easier. But I think the underlying issue here is uh, to make a determination of what factors may be involved in bringing about the loss rather than just pinpointing a number because it will depend. If you have uh, a a uterus that's filled with fibroids, well, it's pretty likely it's going to come back unless those are addressed. If there's an infection, it may be a one-time thing. If it's an incompetent cervix, um, a cerclage can be placed a stitch to keep the cervix closed uh, might prevent this from recurring. So until you have some idea of what factors are involved, it's impossible to predict recurrence. And, Dr. Scott, how would you determine the cause of a uh, of a very late term? What, what, what should people make certain is being done if they've uh, lost a child uh, after you know twenty some odd weeks or whatever. There really is no single answer to that, but they're going to want to look for uh, evidence that the cervix was behaving well and incompetent. That's really not a fertility issue, uh, but they'll their obstetrician should be able to to counsel them about that because that mm-hmm. influences future treatment. They'll culture and look for evidence of infection that occurs uh, in advance. And there's our understanding of the microbiome of pregnancy is changing very rapidly. I don't think any of us have a definitive answer today, but my hunch is in a year we're going to know a great deal more um, as genetics approaches the microbiome world. Uh, I think above and amazing. beyond that, they're going to want to make sure the uterus is shaped normal. They're going to want to look at the fetus to see if it had a genetic abnormality or another clinically related syndrome, and they're probably going to go for there. Unfortunately, we don't always know, uh, but those are going to be things that are probably the highest yield. Beyond that, they should certainly talk to their obstetrician about their specific circumstances. Okay, yes. Yeah. So obviously for uh we would want anyone who is um experiencing this to make certain they contact. And um we never I don't remember if we ever got answered I think it was uh whose question? Naomi's question at the very beginning. Um she had experienced many very early pregnancy loss uh, uh prior to six weeks. Uh, the pregnancy test uh showed she was pregnant but very shortly she would uh she lost the pregnancy. And one of her questions was, what type of doctor should she go see? As she said, I'm not even sure that I'm technically considered infertile because I can get pregnant. I just can't keep the pregnancy. Should I see an infertility specialist or should I be seeing somebody else? And, uh, Dr. Perlow, I don't think we ever answered that. So uh, what no, we type didn't of doctor get to... should people see? Well, I think in this case, someone who's had repeated losses like this should consider seeing a reproductive endocrinologist who is fellowship tra- trained. One of the treatment options, um, if this truly is a loss due to aneuploidy, would be to consider IVF as part of the uh, treatment armamentarium. And um, that's not always something that's available to the OBGYN, and they may not be thinking along those lines. Um, So I think it's a good idea to uh, see a reproductive endocrinologist go through the full list of of uh, findings, and then it may come down to making the choice that am I going to invest in um, IVF treatment to reduce the risk of miscarriage uh, based on what are the odds of a recurrence? Yeah, and then and that may come that and that may play out as a uh, as, as a cost analysis. Is it is it illogical to think? that if money was a significant issue for this person, um, to just keep trying and eventually, uh, you know, if, if she's playing the odds of a of an embryo not having a genetic abnormality, that eventually she would get pregnant with one of the embryos that is not? Or, is that, uh, or does she also risk that, in fact, that she would give birth to a child with significant birth defects? Is there is there any connection, I suppose, between... Well, there- um, yeah, genetic abnormalities yeah. and birth defects. There is some evidence that if you've had uh, prior aneuploidy losses, you may be at a slightly greater risk for a, um, a live-born abnormality. So it's something that we would suggest people screen for. 
but um, I think they have to look at where they are emotionally, where they are financially, um, whether the other factors have been evaluated. Um, if someone has a uh, balanced, uh, uh, they have a balanced translocation, then um, the likelihood of their success is going to be small, and they may continue for quite a long time before they are um, successful. So I think you need to do the evaluation, and then the couple has to decide if they feel they want to make an investment in reducing the risk with IVF and embryo biopsy. We have. Can I add one thing to that consideration, Dr. Scott? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there is when the patients are having recurrent loss, particularly the older patients who are also infertile, because they they do commonly go together. There, this concept of just putting the embryos back, and you know, the uh, the most of the abnormals won't make it. The normals will eventually make it, and you'll get to term. Is is in fact not sound. Um, while that certainly can be the case, and we've all certainly treated patients that way, very much including myself, the reality is when a patient goes through a clinical loss. Um, by the time they get go through a cycle, get transfer those embryos without knowing if they're normal or not, go through a pregnancy, have the miscarriage occur, have their their recovery interval, letting their hormones come down and their body reset. The time before they recycle, on average, in, in our clinic, on a, on a basis of over 20,000 treatment cycles of, which were reviewed, is almost six months. It takes about five wow. months because there's an emotional yeah. healing for a patient who's 39 or 40, there are good data actually from Neri Laufer's group in DASA to say that that six months may cost them as much as a third of their cumulative lifetime fertility. Huh. Those yeah, six months don't cost them. They're not free. And yeah. so now all of a sudden, instead of treating a 39-year-old, you're treating someone who's 40. And if they have two or three of those, they're 41 or 42. And so, yes, by putting back that embryo without knowing, as opposed to saying, I'm sorry, this is bad, let's try again and find the good one, you are actually intervening to lower her cumulative long-term probability of delivering. It is not it, – this letting nature sort it out is not a zero-sum game. And they definitely take risks for lowering their long-term ability to deliver. I certainly agree with that. Um, if you've got embryos present, I think for many of them that where infertility may not be the issue right. and they're not in a mandated state, um, you know, to spend eighteen to 20000 to reduce the risk, that may not be something that uh, they have the financial option. But certainly um, if they're older, the, the time does play a very important role in, in getting where they want to be. And, age and it may help them move on if they have a lot of uh, embryos that are biopsied and out of the batch they find that they're all aneuploidy or demonstrate aneuploidy. Uh, they may be more willing to accept um, oocyte donation as an alternative. And you know, that's yeah, there, very there are real. relatively few patients with three clinical losses, by the way, that don't meet the definition of infertility. So there are a few that fall out that, but but quite frankly, um, just how long it takes to conceive on average, particularly as people in their late 30s, it's not the first month every time. By the time right. you go through three losses, recoveries, and intervals, you've been a more than a year from the beginning to the time you can conceive, and some professional societies say six months is enough. So so almost everyone at that point is infertile because they've not led to delivery. Uh, well, and, and that's so a, again, that gets, we have to be yeah. aggressive with these people. We and that to, they get to, to the definition of yes is is the is the definition of infertility inability to get pregnant or inability to carry to, uh, a fetus to term, um, and in this case Naomi's uh, was uh, I don't remember now but she had quite a few uh, she did, I don't know if she even mentioned she had very many early very early right. pregnancy losses and you're right they had been trying to conceive for a year and a half therefore two years I can't remember what she said. To, to, uh, yeah. To a biologist who may be being impersonal here, so I want to ask forgiveness for everyone listening. Whether an embryo is chromosomally abnormal and stops growing in three days or grows for three weeks or even three months, which I think is a greater tragedy because it's so much harder on my patients, it's all part of the same biologic phenomenon. So uh, while I'm glad my patients can implant, I am not highly reassured that they're doing that, and I don't treat them very differently I rule out all the other factors, but if it comes down to embryos and mostly aneuploidy, then I don't treat them different than someone who had failed to conceive because the reality is the etiology, the cause is the same, and selection remains the most effective treatment. 
Yes, and that's an excellent point. And on that note, we will uh, we have come to the end of our time. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors. It is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources provided at Creating a Family. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are a pioneer of one of the first embryo donation programs called Snowflakes. And we also have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. You can uh, find out about all of our sponsors on our website. The gold sponsors have their logos on the site. Just click on it, and it will take you immediately to their site. I'd like to thank you both, Dr. Scott and Dr. Perlow, for being our guests today on Creating a Family. Uh, I will be blogging about the subject of this uh, show tomorrow, and I encourage all of you to check out the blog and participate in the discussion uh, that will be posted tomorrow. To get more information on Georgia Reproductive Specialists, you can go to their website, ivf.com. To get more information about Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, you can go to their website, R-M-A-N-J, that's to stand, that's the initials, Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, rmanj.com. And I thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.